0: Hey, this is Emily from Survival Guide, formerly Tsunami Bomb. You're listening to the new scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the new scene. I am your host, Keith, and we are back with a brand new episode. We've got a special one tonight, folks. On the show, John Lamakia of Candiria. He's got a new band, Lamakia. He's got a new album, Thunderheads. I have spoken to John, and we cover it all. We talk about John's history. We talk about Candiria's history. We talk about the van accident. We talk about John's upcoming album. We talk about everything. It's a great conversation, so strap in. You are going to love it. Okay, so before we jump into all that and the music news, folks, we need your support. Here is how you can support the new scene. Number one, Apple Podcasts and Spotify reviews. The reviews are coming in. We are up to 70 on Apple Podcasts and 66 on Spotify. Thank you so much to everybody who is submitting the reviews. Give us a five-star review. And if you write a nice review on Apple podcasts, I will read it on the air. My goal is to get over 100. So keep them coming. Follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. You can find us at new scene pod YouTube. We have a main channel with the full episodes and a clips channel with clips from some of our favorite episodes of the show. Subscribe to both of those. Like, comment, all of that helps us out in the overall scheme of things. Follow me on Twitch at The New Scene and sign up for email notifications so you know when I go live. The schedule really just depends on when I feel like doing it and when I can do it. Uh, 99% of the time when I'm on Twitch, I play Warzone and we hang out and chat. We can talk about the show. We can talk about gaming. We can talk about whatever you want. So you can follow me there. And we have a shirt available for sale. At Deathwish Inc. Search the new scene. The shirt will pop right up. It's a wonderful looking shirt. You want it. Trust me. And the funds from the shirt help directly support this show. So thank you everybody so much who has purchased a shirt. Post a picture of yourself wearing the shirt. I'll post that on our Instagram story. And don't forget to support our sponsor, Iodine Recordings. You can check them out at iodinerecords.com. Iodine is doing a new Instagram live artist-on-artist interview series. Your favorite artists interviewing your favorite artists. They just did one last week with Nathan Gray and the Iron Roses and Travis Opel, singer of Hey Thanks. I loved it. There's more coming up. So make sure you follow Iodine on Instagram at iodine recordings so you can get notified when the next one goes up. Also, Iodine has a new Boston Hardcore Spotify playlist featuring some of Boston's finest up until the year 2005. We've got Bane, we've got In My Eyes, we've got American Nightmare, we've got Converge, we've got Ten Yard Fight, we've got Caven. great mix of bands, classic hardcore, new crossover hardcore, everything you could want, check it out on Spotify. All right, so there's a lot of music news this week. Let's jump in. Number one, folks... Very important news has been released. Sunny Day Real Estate will be one of the Saturday headliners at this year's Furnace Fest, and I'm so excited for that, number one, because I will be at Furnace Fest, and number two, I've seen Sunny Day Real Estate, but I also haven't. I was at their 2008 run of shows, but I don't remember any of it because I was completely obliterated at the show, and then that night I left the show and got punched in the face out on the street. That's a whole separate story. Still don't remember why that happened. But listen, the important news is Sunny Day Real Estate is playing, and I am going, and I will see them. And I'm very excited. The Riot Fest lineup has been announced. A lot of huge bands on that. My Chemical Romance, Misfits playing Walk Among Us, Nine Inch Nails. Wow, what a fest, what a lineup. Also, Fairweather. Fairweather has a new EP coming out. June 24th on Equal Vision Records. They have a new single, Untethered. I've heard it. I love it. I love the direction the band is going. We've had Peter from Fairweather on our show. So go back into our back catalog and check that out. I remember him talking about new Fairweather music coming up and the new direction. And I love what they're doing. This is Fairweather's first new music in over eight years. So congrats to Fairweather on the upcoming release. All right, so... We're out of time for this segment, but check back in with me at segment three. I have attended the Interpol and Tycho gig at King's Theater in Brooklyn. I'll talk about that. I'm also celebrating another year alcohol and drug free. My clean date anniversary was this past weekend. I will share those tales in segment three. But right now, we are going to speak to John Lamakia of Candiria and Lamakia. Enjoy. Can you feel the wind blow? Take your candy on my mind
1: till I'm cold <laughs>
0: folks, we're here now with John Lamacchia. John, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Keith. I appreciate it. Yes, it's excellent to have you here, John. You know, you've done so much in music between your rich history with Candiria and, of course, the upcoming solo album, Thunderheads. And we're going to talk about all of that. But first, John, I have to ask you a very important question. How are you doing today?
1: Um, Today, I'm pretty good. Um, work's been kind of crazy. I do uh, production work outside of making music and, you know, got to pay the bills and everything. So, um, work is picking up because it's the season, you know, um, people are starting to do events again because the weather's getting warmer. And, uh, other than that, I am just keeping my eye on the prize. We have this, I have this record coming out. Um, and, um, as, as, uh, intense as my schedule is getting, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very happy. So I'm doing well today.
0: Sounds excellent. What kind of production work do you do exactly?
1: I do um AV work basically, audio, video, um I build video walls, I set up lighting, I do um sound and like all kinds of stuff like that. I build stages. So, event work basically, event work.
0: So, is it for live music or all different kinds of things?
1: All different kinds of things. I do everything from live music to um corporate events to fashion shows to private parties to uh we work meetings i do everything anything that involves a microphone or a stage or uh, a lighting system or or a couple of lights i do it all
0: (laughs) nice so you must be pretty busy because with that work you have to be on call you have to be ready and you cannot leave until the event is done that's right yeah it's
1: pretty it's pretty intense work um It's a lot of fun, though. You meet a lot of interesting people. You meet other artists. Um, I get to work in sort of my field. You know, I've been on stages most of my life. And um, I've been, you know, recording music. I have an audio background. Um, So it's great to kind of work in my world, basically. But, you know, obviously, it's different than being a performer. So you kind of get like the best of both worlds in that sense, you know?
0: So are you a New York City native? Yes, I am. Where'd you grow up?
1: I grew up in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, which is like one neighborhood over from where I am now.
0: Tell us about growing up there.
1: Uh, Growing up in Sheepshead Bay was, um, hmm, how can I, well, well, look, it was the 70s and 80s in New York City. (laughs) So this was a very uh, crazy, um, wild place to grow up. Um, There was a lot of violence. There was a gang on every major avenue. There was a lot of fighting um there was a lot of uh vandalism there was a lot of crime there was a lot of muggings um the subway was extremely dangerous and uh at the same time though once i grew a a little bit older and i started going to i started discovering more of the city outside of my little world my little microcosm of a world like you know, living in Sheepshead Bay, I went to uh, Shell Bank Junior High School. Um, all of my schools were basically in Sheepshead Bay. Growing up, I went to public public school, so they were basically they just sent me whatever, to whatever school was near me. So it wasn't until I started going to college, and then I started playing music a little bit before that, that I started learning a little bit more about the city and like venues and different cultures and different people. Um, once that started happening, it made all of the traveling, the dangerous traveling on the subway worth it because I was going to, I was going to events, I was going to like concerts, I was seeing hardcore shows, I was seeing concerts, I was, I was going to, you know, meet up with cooler friends and, you know, I mean, it was like, it was just a, a big change. And then, you know, as things started, um, eventually, you know, I started playing in a band that was kind of serious. We actually signed a record deal. This was before I joined Canderia. This is like lead from like the early '90s up to when I joined Kandiria. Um, We started playing some serious shows. Like we we were he- we would be able to headline a club like Lamore and um, bring out a huge crowd. Like we were doing really well. We we would play like really notable venues. So it was at that point in my life where things really started changing, and at the same time the city started changing. This was like the '90s, so now things were better. The economy was better. The city was no longer poor. Things were just Overall, getting better. They weren't great, but they were definitely better. It was a little safer, and uh, and then eventually I moved out of Sheep's Head Bay. So that's really the end of that story. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How did you fit into all the craziness in Sheep's Head Bay as a young man and young adult? Did you have to be friendly with the gangs to be okay? Did you have to fight for everyday existence? Um,
1: depended on what age we're talking about. Um, if when I was about ten, I would say ten years old or so. Um, I know that sounds crazy to say that I'd be, I'd be getting into fights and stuff like that, but it was really true. Like at that age, there were kids bringing knives to school. There were kids bringing like weapons to school. Um, you had to be able to, you know, fight. You had to be able to kind of hold your own. Um, and there was a kid who lived around a corner from me who was this, was a member of this gang. He was in, he was, he was Albanian, I think. So it was like a, it was a really weird city to live in because things were really divided differently than they are now like you know it was like neighborhood to neighborhood if you were italian and and or you know and you grew up in a certain neighborhood you had certain people that had your back it was just really strange like that um but there was this one kid his name was harry and um there was a deli that i had to go to to pick up food to pick up stuff for the family you know i would have to go to the grocery store and get things and it was all past this dude's house this kid's house he was a child but any any time I went past there he would he would chase me, and he was bigger than me, he was older than me and and um if he caught me, I'd have to fight or get beat up. <laughs> but then going to school um you know going to school was rough, I got jumped, and um yeah, know look I, I had to do what I had to do, but I was lucky when I went to um when I went to junior high school, I went to school with my brother, and my brother was feared by everyone, he was feared by his people in his own grade, and everyone in my grade and, and between feared him. He was, he was known as a, a fighter and, a, you know, kind of a, you know, the kind of guy you didn't want to fuck with basically. Um, yeah. so that was great. Everyone knew who I was and, uh, they knew who he was, so I didn't get fucked with. And then I went to, um, he went to Sheepshead Bay high school and he was three years older than me. And then my parents thought it was a great idea to send me to a different school. And I don't think they realized what they were doing when they were doing that. <laughs> so now <laughs> I didn't have my big brother, you know, in the school who was older and could kind of like, I always had, like I had family there. It was, it's different, you know? So I went to Grady and that's where shit got really, really hard for me because I didn't know anyone. Um, I was new to the school. I was a stranger to a lot of people and I just didn't have my people there. Um, eventually an awesome thing happened. I got hit by a car while I was skateboarding when I was 15 and, um, I got really hurt really bad and I I was bed bound for six months. Wait, not bed bound. Yeah, I was, I was pretty much bed bound for a while and, uh, I had to do an entire semester of school, um, with a tutor, which I might add is the best grades I've ever gotten in my life. (laughs) Um, secondly, um, I got, it got me out of Grady. And after that, I went to Sheepshead Bay High School where my brother went and, uh, it was just easier. I just knew everyone in that school, but I mean, you know, as a young guy growing up in New York city in the late seventies and the early eighties into the, into the early nineties, you know, and even in the, in the hardcore scene and the punk scene and the music scene here, it was violent. It was really violent, but, um, I lived relatively, Sheepside Bay was relatively a safer neighborhood than a lot of other neighborhoods. So if I stood in my neighborhood, I was relatively safe. It's just a matter of like, when you travel out to other neighborhoods that you potentially could get into a situation where, you know, you run into the wrong people and they just are not happy that you're in their neighborhood or something like that, you know?
0: Exactly. Exactly. I'm fascinated by New York and uh, days earlier than I lived here in the how things work, and you know you like you say you lived in Sheepshead Bay, but you didn't even really get out to the city until I guess closer to college, right,
1: yeah, no that's definitely right. I mean, I was in uh that's pretty much really when it started going to restaurants and starting discovering like um different types of foods, and like my friends were turning me on to different things, you know it's college, it's like you know okay now we're we're getting older and you know, you're checking out new cool stuff. Like there's, you know, kinds of like all kinds of like art shit to do and like go to museums and, you know, I just started dating people and starting getting cultured and getting into different kinds of music. So, yeah, I mean, that was a big moment for me. A big, an important transition for me was when I started going away from, from South Brooklyn, you know, and up to more neighborhoods that had, up to neighborhoods that had more culture and up to Manhattan, which was the cultural Mecca back then. Not like it is like now it's, 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 it's kind of like spread up, spread out a bit. Like, you know, Queens and Brooklyn have become like cultural Meccas in their own way in a, in a sense. But Manhattan was where you went if you wanted to experience art and music and uh, all cool stuff like that.
0: Yeah. I think uh, the whole music scene has been pushed to Bushwick at this point.
1: A lot of it. Yes. Um, At least North Brooklyn for the most part. Us, uh, South Brooklyn guys are tr- oh we, We're always trying to create some kind of thing, you know. Um, we're always trying to create some kind of some kind of like movement or something down here, but it rarely, it rarely works out. It's just, it's not the same sort of. Um, how do you say that? It? It, I don't know. In Bushwick and Williamsburg and like Greenpoint and North Brooklyn, there's so many new people coming in all the time, and there's they're just always looking for something new to do. So it's a little bit more liberal. It's a little bit more open. People. It has a reputation of having like more venues and 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 places to go and 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 things to do. And South Brooklyn is definitely more conservative, working class, a lot more immigrants. Um, and uh, so I guess it's just a a, a kind of a, a struggle. But for me, my whole life, I've always I've always gone to North Brooklyn for for culture and shows and concerts. So to me, it's no nothing's different now. You know, there are some places down this way um, towards South Brooklyn. There's now zero space on uh
0: that i've heard of yeah yeah
1: that's a big venue i just saw battles and quicksand there
0: oh right that's how i've heard of it mm-hmm. yeah that was really cool how was that show that must have been amazing
1: it was great it was fantastic i mean i'm a big a huge quicksand fan um i love yeah. those guys and um they uh sounded fantastic even though i think it was zero space it was their first actual concert so the um, actual PA system they had in there was, was really just not enough for the size of the space. But that said, they still sounded great. They still performed really, really well. It was a really great show.
0: And I'm glad I caught it. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So when you were coming up, where did you fall in the world of music? Were you really into hardcore? Were you listening to everything? Talk about uh, that period a little bit.
1: Um, growing up, I was really into like heavy metal. I was into like, Judas Priest and Black Sabbath and, like, um, Metallica, you know, and, like, stuff like that, Anthrax. Yeah. I was into, like, metal was, like, this thing that was just happening and it was, like, incredible and it was all new to me and I wanted to play guitar. I wanted to learn how to shred. And um, that's really, that was really truly my first love was was really getting into, like, metal music, you know. And still to this day, like, some of those albums are still, like, I you know, they're they're still amazing to me. But then the thing that happened was I wanted to play in a, in a heavy metal band. But all my, my, my best friends, um, my friend Tommy Trippy, who um, played guitar as well, and my friend Michael Scandato, who still plays music to this day, he plays in a band called Inhuman. I don't know if you ever heard of them. Yes. And The Last Stand. He plays in those bands. Uh, we were all best friends. And at that point, we were about 13 or 14 years old. We lived all around each other. And we were all getting into music and getting into, like, learning how to play instruments. Mike played bass. I played guitar. Tommy played guitar. And um, they wanted to... They got into, like, skating. They got into, like, skate skateboards and, and stuff like that. I got into it, too, a little bit. But they were, like, really way more into it. Um, we all started listening to punk, like Misfits, GBH, you know, Dead Kennedy, stuff like that. But then they wanted to really, they wanted to play like hardcore music, like Token Entry, Minor Threat. Um, They were into bands like that, like Bold, Youth of Today, um, Gorilla Biscuits. Um, That was really what they were into. And that's the kind of music they wanted to play, which which at first to me was kind of disappointing because I wanted to play guitar. And um, although now I might look at it differently, but I wanted to be able to play guitar solos, I wanted to like play like cool riffs, like, you know, like, like notey riffs. And they basically wanted to play like hardcore, like the, the, the first sort of generation of hardcore bands were basically like, it was like a, it was sort of like punk in a way, but the, the message was different. The attitude was different. Um, But it was really based in like punk music. So I was a little bummed about it at first, but then. You know, we formed a band, we made a couple of demos and I was able to get to I played. they you know, they they let me play a couple of solos. I wrote like some some like crossover riffs and stuff like that, and it worked out, you know? Um so that was basically it. That was my, my first couple of bands were both hardcore bands.
0: So talk about joining forces with Canderia. When does it happen? How does it happen?
1: Um Kandiria and my old band Dead Air, we were we were buddies. We we rehearsed in the same Rehearsal, rehearsal spot, which was called Ace London in Marine Park, South Brooklyn, once again. And uh, we were, you know, we were, we had similar friends and we were always rehearsing, at, you know, we were in, we rehearsed a lot. We played music a lot at, at that space. Candy was, was just the same. We spent a lot of time playing music in, in, in the studio, whether we had shows coming up or not. We just were like obsessed with music, you know, as young musicians can be, you know, and so we just became friends. And um, I think the first thing that wound up happening was Ken. We, we, Ken also worked at the studio. So he would come in and like check on us and listen to the band. And he knew the music. And he was actually into it. He was really into the band. And I remember one time we got uh, – this was when we got signed. This was like later on. We recorded a couple of demos. And then after that, we went in actually – we got picked up by a record label called Wonderland Records – and um, we started writing to make a full-length album. And um, Ken obviously got wind of this, and he was excited for us. And he was, you know, at this point, Canderia and, and my old band, Dead Air. We had played shows together. You know, it was like back in the day when a, a mixed bill, like a, a band like Canderia and my like grunge prog band, like playing a show together was not the wildest idea. It was mixed bills just happened all the time. They really did. So we would, we would, uh, we would play with Candyria and, um, Ken was always around and he enjoyed the music a lot. He even would play, get on stage and play some percussion, um, with us. You know, he would play his didgeridoo and he would, you know, he was, he was always like, he was always getting involved in one way or another. And then when it came time for us to go record our album at Applehead Music upstate, um, he was kind enough to drive us and, and stay with us for a few days while we were, while we did this. And I never really thought about how, kind of awesome that was of him for him to just take time out of his life and just be like, all right. I mean, we were all young kids and he, I'm sure he was like super psyched to go to like Applehead studios, you know, and hang and uh check out the session. You know, we were all like broke young people, you know? So, and Applehead was like a big deal. So, Um, I think he did get a lot out of it, and he did play some keys on the album. He got to jump in and and get involved a little bit. So, um, but I'm really still to this day. I look back on that, and and I'm I'm super grateful that we had someone who was willing to like take his whatever three days out of his life and just go up there with us and hang, so we can get there and do this. You know, it was really kind of cool of him. You know. Yeah. So needless to say, moving on. The closer I got to Ken, that and we got to Ken. Uh, He had this uh, music project called Intrigue, which was all fully improvised music, which it wasn't jazz by any means, but it was improvised, ambient, weird, out there music. And um, it was Ken and this dude, Joe, and they would just get in a room. Ken would play keys. He would play synth. He would play like ambient synth music. And this guy, Joe Bacardi would play like these, um, drum patterns with like mallets, you know, like really tribal-y, like ambient stuff. And, um, I sat in on a session one time and, uh, you know, we all smoked a bunch of weed and I just sat in on the session and I loved it. It was a beautiful thing to experience. And, um, you know, having a great amount of respect for Ken as it was, I was obviously interested in, in jumping in on the session. So you know, with Ken's disclaimer to me being like, you know, this isn't like heavy metal music, man. You can't just like solo over everything. I <laughs> I was like, dude, I know I get it. I fucking get it, bro. This is ambient stuff. I'm aware. So I did a session. I did a session with them and it went really well. As a matter of fact, it went well enough for him to invite me back. And um, we did a bunch of those recordings, which I still have. I got to go through them. The dude Joe Bacardi sent me every single thing they ever recorded. Um, so I have it all in my apartment.
0: Has any of that ever been released? No, and I have to get that out there.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you don't understand. It's like a drawer. It's like a, an entire drawer filled with CDs that he sent me. He was like, here, dude, do something with it, which, you know, throw it on the pile of 100,000 things I have, you know, planned. So from there, um, what wound up happening was I wound up getting into yet another serious accident. I wound up getting into an accident on Christmas Day in 1996. I was, um, at I was leaving my father's house my mother and father's house and we were dra- we were driving a very short distance in Long Island to my aunt Mickey's house and in that sort of 5 minute drive we got me and I was in the passenger seat my 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 then girlfriend Diala was sitting in the she was driving and um some guy was trying to like make the light And my dad made the turn and he sped up and he had to swerve out of the way of my dad because he just like came out of nowhere. And he drove like head on into us. And um, he, uh, you know, it was insane how how hard he hit us. He, you know, I don't think he, uh, I think he tried to hit hit his brakes like really last second, but um, we got hit so hard and we, we started spinning and everything. Whatever. Needless to say, I wound up in the hospital with a broken femur, and um, it was just a really terrible experience and By the time January rolled around, I could no longer go back to Brooklyn and live there. I had to go live with my parents um, because I could I couldn't walk and at that point, I was like, "You know what? I think Dead Air has run its course, my band Dead Air, like my bass player Mike went off and started doing some tours with Marauder, and um, slowly but surely, like the record deal we had, it kind of fizzled out. And I was going to quit music. Honestly, I was really at a point where I was like, you know what? I tried this. Uh, I've been doing this for about ten years now, and nothing's come. N- nothing really came of it. And um, I think it's time to just maybe consider going to school or something and, and focusing on something else. And I told my dad I was going to quit music, and he's like, "No, don't quit. You stick with it. You have to stick with it. You, you're you're hard. You're, you're a hard worker. You're good at what you do. Something good will come of it." And I was like, all right, well, okay. I'll think about sticking around then. And, uh, and then literally like a week later, I got a call from Carly and, uh, the original guitar player, Chris Puma decided he didn't want to be in the band. He didn't want to tour. He didn't want to do like, you know, the guys in Candiria. they, most of the guys in Candiria they wanted to become a big band. They wanted to become a serious band. They wanted to tour. They had these like dreams and aspirations. And Chris was only interested in learning how to play music and learning how to play guitar, which I, I really respect him for that because he was a very studious, like, musician. Um, and he was extremely talented, but his interest in music was, was, um, a lot different than the rest of the guys and, and me for that matter. So, um, when Carly called me, I was like, yeah, of course. I mean, at that point, Candyria was already like, they were like, just by putting out one album, they put out Surrealistic Madness, the first album. They already were like the most, you know. Everyone, if you knew the band, you were absolutely like blown away by them. They were like, yeah, they were just like they just made a record. They were they changed the game basically. I mean, literally, the band did.
0: They really did. They they completely stand on their own in terms of everything that was going on at the time. There's no other band that sounds like Candiria.
1: It's true. It really is true, and and I can say that. Because they created this sound and I, I was not a part of that. So, as a fan, I, as a fan of the band before I joined, um, I really feel it is true. And it's something that Mike said some years ago you take Candyria away, you take away a musical style, you lose part of the musical spectrum in a way. And I do really truly feel that it's, it's, it's 100% accurate, you know? Um, so at that point, when Carly asked me, I was really floored and excited. And it was, of course, because, you know, Ken was like, get John. John will be perfect for this. But the challenge was I, 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 li- I didn't have a home. I didn't, I couldn't barely walk. I was walking around. I was still on crutches. So, um, for there was a time period there where I was, I won't say I was homeless because I always had someone's floor to crash on, but I really did. I didn't have my own place to live. Um, I couldn't get back and forth from Long Island. So, if I decided to go to Brooklyn and stay there, Um, I kind of had to just crash on someone's floor. And um, for a while there, it was pretty rough. I actually wound up moving into an apartment. And um, the bedroom I moved into in Midwood, there was no windows because they were all broken and smashed out. (laughs) (laughs) So, And all I had was a mattress on the floor. And I had like a bag of clothes. It's really like, in in a way, it's kind of like that really... It's kind of like that same old story about like, you know, you, you know, just got like a fucking duffel bag and your and your dreams and shit like that. I know it sounds corny, but that's really how it was for some time. Yeah. And then I got kicked out of the apartment. Why? The the landlord wanted to rent it to I think they the usual story in in New York City when when someone owns a building, eventually they want their family to move in.
0: Uh, yeah. Or their yeah. family
1: wants to move in and they don't really have a choice. Um, it, happens, right. it happens pretty often. So that was the case with, with um, this apartment I was living in. I wasn't totally disappointed because I needed to get the fuck out of there. Oh, from there, Eric Matthews, my guitar player um, at the time, he was looking to move into an apartment as well. He was at the time for many years living in his basement, his parents' basement for many years. And he was like at a point where he was like, all right, I want to move out of here. I want to get an apartment. Um, and our mutual friend, Jason Lara, um, who has performed on some of the Candiria albums as well, um, we had our little crew. We had, we had like a big extended family of musicians and stuff. After I left that uh, that apartment that I got pushed out of, my, my then girlfriend, that girl Diala, that I got into the accident with, yeah, her mom let me live with them for a while, which was kind of wild. And then I eventually wound up moving into an apartment with Jason and Eric, and we wound up like I finally had my feet on the ground, planted firmly on the ground, and um, I was able to stay in the band and stay in Brooklyn and get on the road with those guys.
0: Nice, nice. And yeah, the, you know, it's amazing what we do to pursue our dreams. I've heard this story before where someone has to live in a car or someone has to live in an empty room while they're making ends meet to to get this thing done, and you did that. Sure, Yeah. One hundred percent, man. I mean, you know, I can't. You know,
1: there, I'm, I'm I'm one of many who have who have made whatever sacrifices they felt they needed to make in order to, you know, do music and and make music. So I, uh, you know, I only did what what I felt I needed to do.
0: Which is great because you were almost out, but right? and surprisingly, your dad asked you to stay in. You know, you would think parents were like, "Yeah, go to college." Enough with this music shit. But your dad encouraged you. Yeah, he
1: did. You know, it's funny because I don't know if you know this, but my dad was the reason I played music in the first place. Oh, really? Why is that? Well, I don't know. My 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 dad, you know, I'm I'm the fourth, I'm the I'm the baby of four kids. Yeah. And um I think what my dad wanted for me was just something different. He wanted me to try different things. And he wanted me He knew I I loved music. He knew I loved art. He wanted me to try different things. He thought at first I was going to be a baseball player. He got me into little league. um I was treated differently than than my siblings i, I feel like i mean, I feel very fortunate, but at the same time as a part of me, it's like, man, nobody else got to go to Little League. You know, nobody else got anything special um but my dad did he took it and like an interest in me and and he wanted me to do something different. I think in his mind, after all he'd done his whole life um he wanted me to and quote unquote, in his words, not work another day in my life. Well, you know, pops, <laughs> <laughs> I have two jobs. I own my own business and I'm a musician. Um, <laughs> I, that's what he wanted for me. He wanted me to have something like that. If he go, he, you know, he always put it this way. It's like, you know, that classic saying, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Um, it's not true by any means. You'll work more, but it's not as shitty. No, it's not as shitty. You're right. Um, but that's, that was his thought process. And then after the baseball thing, you know, didn't work out, I lost the big game. I lost the, the big world series of the league for my team. Um, a ground ball right between my legs. What are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. No, it's totally true. And, uh, whatever, um, baseball wasn't for me. I'm not a sports guy, you know? Um, yeah. so after that, my dad decided, you know what? I want you to play an instrument. <laughs> and I was like, all right, I'll play the drums. He goes, nope, you'll play the guitar. And uh, I was like, okay, dad, whatever you want. And then um, he brought home uh, a an, an nylon a nylon string acoustic guitar, which was really hard to hold and play. But uh, I got the hang of it a bit. And um, I it really, like, I don't know, man, it stuck. It stuck more than anything. You know, like, I was really, really invested. I was really, truly, like... I was really interested in learning how to make sounds that I heard on records.
0: And that must be the thing then, because if you were truly into baseball, you would have uh, gotten over the loss and continued and continued to grow and continued to play. But you're, you're a musician.
1: Right. That is definitely the case. I was, I would, um, yeah, you're right. A hundred percent because there have been many losses um, and there have been many challenges and there have been many defeats as far as music is concerned, but I keep doing this stuff (laughs) and I'm like, I don't know what keeps me going. I don't know. I have to do it. I have to play music. I have to write songs. More than anything, I have to write.
0: Do you ever think that maybe you're cursed as far as vehicular accidents go?
1: You know what? Here's the interesting thing. There was a, a period of time where it wasn't only me that thought I was cursed, but my also my bass player Mike, who's like, you know, he's my best friend as well. He knows more than most my history with um, accidents. And um The first one I would consider an accident was when I was five years old. Uh, My sister Gina took me for a joyride on a bicycle around the block a few times. And she was like going kind of wild. She was like, you know, swerving and swerving. And eventually uh, my legs were going like going side to side. And eventually my my leg got caught in the spokes. My foot, like my foot got caught in the spokes. Um, and, uh, she, the bike just screeched, you know, and stopped. And now she's standing there and she just starts stomping on the pedal. You know, she's not much older than me. She's being a kid and, and trying to like, why isn't this bike going? She didn't think to look backward, look back. I'm not saying a word. I didn't say anything. Um, and then I scream because my, my, I like fractured my leg. Oh my goodness. And, and I, I, that was the first time. So that was the first time I've been in a hospital. It's the first time I was hospitalized. They did all these x-rays. I was, you know, it was my first experience, like breaking a bone and having some kind of like accident that had to do with something with wheels. And then the accident 10 years later, 10 years later, the, uh, the skateboard accident where I got hit by a car, um, in the rain and the lady left me there. Um, and then eight years later from that year, eight years, uh, now eight years later, I get into that head-on collision with my ex diala and then six years later, I get into the huge accident with Candiria. Yeah. So at that point, I thought, this is it. It's going to be another four years, another two years, and then when I get to zero, I'm going to be dead. That's was that was my theory, and and you know, Mike was like, "Oh my God, imagine if this is true. You're fucking cursed." And blah 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 blah. <laughs> um, but thank God. After the Candiria accident happened, um, I'm knocking on wood. So far, so good. I'm all right. I'm in the clear.
0: <laughs> Thank goodness. Thank yeah. goodness. Yeah, I was going to ask, has there been another accident since? But hopefully the Candiria van accident was it. Now, that's that's a pretty highly publicized accident. And it the image is burned permanently into my brain because, of course, the, the aftermath of the van was the cover of the 2004 Candiria album, What Doesn't Kill You?, Talk about that accident. Now, John, I too have survived a tractor trailer car accident.
1: Oh my God.
0: So I know how insane it can be. Tell us some of your experience and how the band got through it, because it sounded like a painful and long healing process for you and for the band. Yeah.
1: Um, Well, I'm I'm the fortunate one. I am um, the fortunate one out of the bunch, not in the uh, injury sense i was my might my might have been either the worst or the second worst to eric but my the my fortune was I was laying down with my head toward the back where we were hit, and um, when we were hit my my head must have hit the back of the you know the back of the van or whatever, and I was knocked unconscious immediately and um i didn 't get i didn 't experience the, the, the impact and the insanity that, um, like if you ask Mike the same question, he will tell you that it was like one of the most, it's the most violent thing he's ever experienced. Um, um, I couldn't imagine what it must've been like to be in a van that's flipping several times. You know, I can't, I can't even imagine what that's like to be in basically a spinning turning thing like made of metal and and everybody's flying around and my body's flying around and i can't even possibly imagine that um the uh, other fortunate thing was and i think this is one of the things that saved my life was i was ejected from the vehicle i was ejected uh, along with three other of my band members i think mike was ejected eric was and i believe ken was as well eventually we all were four of us were ejected from the vehicle The only two people that were left in the vehicle were Carly and our driver, Kevin. And um, I don't remember anything. Oh, I have one memory of a man putting, like leaning in toward me. He must have stopped. He must have seen what happened, got out of his car. And uh, he was comforting me and talking to me and making sure that I was breathing at least. And I believe he put a jacket under my head and uh then and, and it was the brightest thing I've ever seen in my life. It, it was like it was like the warmest, brightest morning I could ever imagine. It was like I was born on the highway. It was really weird because um they say you see a light when you die or something like that. And I can totally I, I can I totally understand that now. Like, you know, I get it. I get what that light might be. Maybe it has nothing to do with dying and going to heaven, but it has something to do with um, losing consciousness or coming close to death or something like that. I don't know. But, um, I was considered dead by the rest of the band. They all thought I was dead. So I don't know. <laughs> There's something there uh, with that, maybe. Um, so then I, um, black out after this man comes and puts a jacket under my head. And the next thing I know, I'm being, uh, smacked in the face by a doctor, someone, I can barely I'm I'm not waking up and and, and they had like smack me and and, and revive me. And um they they like are smacking me and waking me up and saying, John, 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 um you have to wake up, you have to wake up. And I come to and I'm like, what happened? They were like, well you were in an accident, a really, really bad accident. And um you're okay, you're fine, but we have you have broke some bones, but you're gonna live, you're gonna be fine. Um but we have to give you a catheter and, uh, you have to stick a tube up your nose and down my throat and down your throat. And I was like, I don't care about the catheter, but you're not sticking a tube up my nose down my throat. And they forced me. I was like, I was like fighting these guys. And, um, Ken was in the other room and he yelled at me and he yelled across the room. He's like, he said, man up, man up. I had to fucking deal with it. Now you do. <laughs> <laughs> so i did i manned up and i just fucking straightened out it was good to hear his voice you know even though he was like he was always ken was a very um like uh nurturing but like a a like in a way he had this like he was always like this fatherly sort of i don't know he was a very he played that role in the band he was he looked after everyone in a lot of ways he was he was sort of like the um I don't know how do you how you put it. He was the authority on a lot of things. I mean, he drove us everywhere, he got us everywhere. He was a better musician than anyone else in the band. I mean, he was really he was the only one who knew how to record music properly for the most part. Um, So he was really a big authority. So to hear him, you know, encouraging me to just deal with it was was important. Um, And I'm thankful once again. Ken always comes through.
0: It really is a miracle. I mean, multiple members of the band ejected from the van, laying on the highway, and we all survived. And uh, it's just, it's unbelievable.
1: It really, really, truly is unbelievable. It really is. It's a miracle um, to me that that no one is in a wheelchair. No one is dead. I still play music. You know, I'm not perfect. I mean, I know Mike isn't. I know Mike has severe issues with um, back pain to the point where there are days where he just can't get out of bed. And, um, uh, so I know we all, we all suffer still from these injuries, but, um, it's a miracle that we, that we can, it's a miracle that can wake up and I can go to work and I can do what I do and I can hold a guitar and play chords and, and play music, you know?
0: Did it change your outlook as a whole or just the way you perceive things? Um,
1: for me, not as much because you know, as you know, this was already my fourth serious accident, and there oh, were yeah, two, you're like a veteran, yeah, yeah, and there were two others that were not as serious, but you know just as impactful, you know what i mean like getting getting in a in an automobile accident is is no you know it's always shocking, it's always intent, it's always painful, it's always violent, you know, so i'm uh for me, it didn't change my perspective much, but I think maybe because it also happened to my best friends. It was hard, you know what I mean, to see them also suffer so much. Uh, but at the same time, we all survived. And um, I was just, it's a miracle, you know, and and to not be grateful for that miracle is is also kind of strange, you know what I mean? To not be like, holy shit, we should not be here. We should be dead. Um, and uh, we could all potentially have been dead from that. And we, none of us are. So I think what, well, obviously it affected the music. You know because we wrote a way more emotional album, and uh we named it um what doesn't kill you and we it was all about survival it's all about getting through that and and like taking it from there basically not that the lyrical content you know exactly pertains to the accident and all of that all the stuff that came along you know with it it but it just um it 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 was like I don't know. It, still, that was the the um, overarching theme was was the accident getting through it.
0: And how could it not be?
1: Yeah, of course. Something that traumatizing and intense happens in your life, and you're an artist, you're going to make art about it. That's how I deal. That's how I process. You know. So,
0: so you left the band initially around that time, correct?
1: I did. I left the band for about eight months in total. I think in 2005. I um. I was on the road and um I was going through some heavy relationship stuff along with um heavy addiction at this point to opiates because you know now that I had all of these injuries I was definitely leaning on on any kind of substance I can get my hands on. And um we were also talking about this is a year after nine-eleven that the accident happened. So so Something so t- traumatizing as as nine and, eleven, and you're dealing with it the year next, which is, you know, you know it's like PTSD, you know, of course, the, the next year comes around. And two days after nine eleven, we you know, of the next year, we get into this accident. So it was like all these things that were just so intense. Uh, so I was dealing with things in my own way. I was trying to deal with them in my own way. But at the same time, I think I would have stayed on the road if I was playing music that I was really thrilled about because there are certain things on What Doesn't Kill You that, I really did not want to write. I didn't want to play these songs. I thought they were contrived to some degree. I thought they were produced in a way that was not, wasn't, wasn't right, basically, for, for Candyria and, and, and our journey as a band. That's just me, you know, and I've come a long way and, and I really understand now that it's like, this is a band. It's not about me personally. I mean, I know that sounds obvious, but when you're, when you're writing music and you're, you know, and you're playing in a band for so many years, you really hold sort of a certain amount of artistic integrity. Um, It's extremely, it was extremely important to me, the integrity aspect of it and um, being an artist, being a true artist, and also um, sort of in a sense defying what, you know, what we had built in a way, because our whole thing was, we didn't write choruses or if we did, It was, you know, something like Without Water from 300% Density. There may have been a chorus in that song, but it sure as hell wasn't a bunch of like chords, like C chord to E chord or this or that. It was our own style of it. Um, And I felt like at this point, we were doing things that we wouldn't have done had we not been, if we didn't feel we were put under a certain amount of pressure by certain people. And that's really what it was. We were working with a producer because of certain circumstances Particular circumstances pertaining to our record contract, so they wanted hits. They well, they wanted this guy, this guy David Bendeth, who I really do at this point, um, I think he's great. He's awesome. Um, he was just trying to do what he felt was best for Candiria. He didn't have any he had bad intentions. He had great intentions. And if you actually, if you look at Spotify and you look at Apple Music, you know his intuition was in a way 100 correct. Because the most popular songs that you know you 'll see up there are the songs that he
0: recorded, <laughs> you know what I mean, I think as a band, you have to take risks if you 're around as long as you guys are because i don 't know if you do the same thing forever, that might not work out, and you take a big risk, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn 't like i think I think you have to take risks as an artist oh no, a hundred percent
1: a thousand like i I mean at the time. I couldn't understand why we were doing what we were doing, but now you're right. That's exactly what it is. I still, you know, think of those songs. Are they? Are they? Do I now love those songs? Do I think those songs are great? No, I don't. I don't. But I I also this. It's just a song. It's never going to define me. It's never going to define Candiria. It's never going to really. It's just a song. And um, you know, like you said, you take risks. Some of them. Some of the risks work out. Some of them don't. And in a way. These risks worked out, and in a way they didn't um but i really I'm, I'm I digress honestly um the point was um I left the band, and the reason why was because these uh songs we were playing, the moves we were making our um our manager was kid rocks manager we we were we were we were getting involved in a scene or or, or we were trying to get involved in a scene that we had really no business being involved with. And we left a, a record label like Century Media and I, I don't know, we were just making moves. We we started doing things because people had like these delusions of grandeur basically. Um, and I just wanted to be in a band. I wanted to be in a band that made art. You know what I mean? We made music and because it was, it was art. So I felt, I felt personally that what we were doing was, was sort of, um, it just wasn't right for me personally. It didn't, it didn't sit right with me and with that and the relationship stuff and um, whatever drugs I was doing, I just was like, I need to get off the road. I don't feel good about any of this. I'm not in good shape. I'm not healthy. I need to get off the damn road and just go figure my own shit out. I want to make my own music. I want to do my own thing. And uh, so that's what I did.
0: Now, I want to talk about uh, your upcoming record, Thunderheads, as well, shortly. But sure. Talk about before we jump into that, talk about some of the creative process with Candiri, because it's such a unique band. Such a unique sound. I mean, how how does this sound come together?
1: Well, that's um, that's an interesting question because there's many ways songs come together um, for Kandiria. Um Generally, that's the cool thing about being a guitar player in Candyria is that you get to write a lot of stuff. You really do because a lot of it starts with guitar with guitar ideas, guitar riffs, guitar you know parts and or like a bunch of parts string together and then those parts. Are presented to Ken first and foremost. Not a bass player. Not the bit. Ba- not Mike. Mike is usually the last piece of the puzzle, but it doesn't make it any less important. It's it's actually the most important part of it, in my opinion, because Mike added a dimension to Candiria's music that no one realizes that that what Mike was doing was was probably making the music like m- way more dimensional. You know what I mean? Like he was adding. These like I, I, he would he would write parts that somehow connected with the drums, but obviously also connected with the key of the song and the and sometimes with the key sometimes without it sometimes not with you know not in key he was doing something intentionally dissonant but uh, yeah it, the process would go like that it would be like guitar first it would be, have to be approved by Carly that's first and foremost Carly would have to be like, yes, I like these guitar." Ideas. I like what you're doing. I think I could do something really cool with that vocally. Let's get you and Ken in a room together and let's start working on drum beats. And that would be the second thing that would happen. And at that point, that's when Carly would start to come in and he would start to sit in. He would sit in at rehearsals or writing sessions, basically. And um, him and Mike would sit and slowly, slowly they would build. um, Carly would write verses and slowly but surely um, Mike would then build, um, his baselines. And, um, eventually it would get buttoned up, like in the end, like things would finally start coming together. And then maybe, maybe Carly would have, because his, you know, he, his, his, um, lyrical themes or, or this or that would, um, would, you know, he said what he had to say, let's cut this part down, or I need to say more about this. Let's extend that part. You know? So, so arrangement stuff would happen, and then eventually we would record a demo or we would do some kind of recording and and um and get it ready and start playing it live.
0: And uh, some of the more interesting elements we we incorporate hip hop, we incorporate jazz. Who does that come from? How how do you guys start doing that? It's a it's a very unique and great sound. Thank
1: you. Um a lot of the jazz stuff admittedly is Ken. He was really the jazz guy. Um at least in the early the early on on the early records, when I got into the band, I started writing jazzy, like some of the jazz stuff too, mm-hmm. um as well as Mike, everyone did uh even Carly, even Carly, even Eric um Carly would be like i, I want to hear a horn you know line here, I want to hear a trumpet solo, I want to hear a saxophone solo. He would get involved in that way. Carly was really like he wanted to be on the production end of things he doesn't want he didn't want to just be a singer, um but I would say like for the most part, when it came to the jazz stuff, Ken was really. He was really in charge. Even if it was something that I wrote or Mike wrote or someone else in the band wrote, Ken would take that part and he would work on it and he would learn it and he would develop keys and uh, or, or horn parts and he would develop all kinds of stuff around that. The hip-hop stuff, um, that was really a combination of Carly, Eric, and Ken. They would produce songs. They would produce songs either by conversation or either Ken would write a beat and Carly would have an idea for a sample or a loop or he would have a verse idea or a chorus idea Eric was constantly in the mix with that stuff producing helping writing editing you know doing whatever and that was a big part of it for for, for the hip-hop stuff for me I just I never although I love all the hip-hop stuff we've done in the past it just was you can't, how many people are you going to have writing a hip hop tune? There's only one on the damn, damn album or two at the most. Yeah. So it was like, for me, that was a, the part of the recording session stuff that I kind of like happily just stepped to the side and let these guys do their thing. Because, you know, I think that the, the one thing that um I, 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 f- I feel about, like, even though we kind of stopped working on hip hop tracks throughout, like um after what doesn't kill you, like for kiss to lie, for while they were sleeping. Like even Carly was like, ah, the hip hop stuff, like let's just not do it anything like that for the next record. It just didn't, f- I don't know. Carly's taste changed. Um, just for, for many reasons. We all just were like, cause you know what the thing was? Like, I think initially what Carly Carly's idea was to form some type of hip hop collaboration sort of group that actually performed and it just never took shape. And then I think he felt people expected it, you know, on every album. And I think that was another thing that like kind of annoyed him too. He was like, ah, you know what? It's just like, yeah, we're going to throw another fucking hip hop track on this album too. It was just like a little too predictable. So eventually that kind of got sort of phased out. Who knows
0: though, might come back to it. You never know. I mean, the band incorporates a lot of great elements. And I like that the band really stands on its own in terms of sound, but everybody liked it. It Kandiria was a unifying band. At least in my scene growing up, there mm-hmm. was kind of, it was kind of like city versus suburbs, uh, hardcore purists versus people who liked the more progressive stuff, but right. everybody liked Canderia.
1: Well, I appreciate that, man. Thank you.
0: So let's talk about your record that you've got coming up. You've got a new record under the name Lamakia. It's called Thunderheads. Mhm. I have heard the advance I love what's going on. It's very good electronic influence, rock and roll. Think Auto Lux, think Radiohead. I really like what's going on. Talk about how this was conceived. Talk about putting it together.
1: Um, thank you, man. I appreciate the kind words. Um, you know, I mean, you know, before I joined Candiria, um, and throughout all of my time in Candiria, I never stopped writing songs. I never stopped writing rock songs or like. Ambient songs or electronic music. I'm always writing. I'm always going to do it. Um, And um, it was really, um, I have to, I always mention this because it's true. Uh, Frank Godla came to me one day just before, like, I would say a year before pandemic. So let's say sometime in 2019 or so. He came to me and he said, "Hey man, you know it's great that Candaria is doing things and you guys are active again and you put out a record and all." I goes, "But can, really, why don't you take your solo music seriously? Why aren't why aren't you, you know, your Spilacopa project? Why don't you play live? Why don't you do anything with that? It's great. It's great. You should be really. You should be. You should be doing something with that." And um, you know, I I really respect Frank a great deal as a musician, as someone, as a business person, as someone who um, has. He's an entrepreneur and he's like, he's a very smart guy, you know, and he has and, and music is his, this dude's whole life. So it was not, I didn't take that lightly. I really didn't take that lightly. And then when he even took it one step further and he said, look, i I want, I want to be the drummer and I want to, I want to be in charge of production. I want to put on the stage shows. I was like, this is insane. This is great. This guy wants to, you know, this, he wants to like invest his time. I was blown away by it. I really was. And, um, you know, I really, truly was blown away by it. So that's really, that was really the, the start of it for me to just be like, because I was, I was always putting out records under the Copa moniker. Um, I have been doing that for a very long time, for 20 some odd years. So to me, it was just like, okay, I'm just going to make another record, you know, whatever. Um, or, you know, we're going to play some of these songs, you know, and I was psyched about it. But uh, for him to make that offer and to get into a studio and start working with him, it really put a flame under my fucking ass, basically. And it made me sort of really reconsider what I've been investing my time into. And I decided that it was time for me to let go and stop sort of carrying the torch for Candiria as long as I have. And maybe Candiria can be sort of like the side project and maybe my music can take the front seat. So I really started taking it seriously. And I I was like dead set on like, you know, making making records and, and and just now being a solo artist and that's that. Now, the second part of it was, you know, how, why I stopped using the Spilocopa name and I started using my own name. What wound up happening was I picked up management, Chris Enriquez um, from the band Spotlights, um, his own music project now, Light Tower, and he's also over at Revolver. He took an interest in a song that I put out um, called It's All Over Now, which is on the album, which is actually going to come out on the album. He insists it's on the album, even though it came out already. um (laughs) he became he was in love with this song he was absolutely obsessed with it i mean he really loved it so much and um he was like i want to manage you i want to man because i'm gonna start i'm starting to manage and he goes and and um if you're gonna do this thing and you're gonna go solo and you're gonna make an album i want to be a part of it and i was now now there's another person i'm like holy shit this is insane man you know like these people are like they are really like are coming out of the woodworks to be a part of this.
0: It must feel so good to have all of these people in your corner encouraging you. You know, because usually, usually I'm putting something together and I'm like, I'm going to do this, and people are like, okay, or <laughs> nothing. But like, you've got all you've got all this wonderful support.
1: Right, exactly,
0: and 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 you know, you, you it's really true, man. You
1: need that. You need that encouragement. I, at least I do. I need it. Some people don't need anybody. They don't need a shit. They just do it. They're gonna fucking do it.
0: I need encouragement on top of encouragement on top of encouragement.
1: <laughs> I agree with you a hundred percent. I'm I'm the same way, but to have that encouragement and have that support just makes me like so dedicated, you know. And um, so, as far as the name goes, um, Chris starts managing me. And now he's talking to everybody about it. He's telling everybody, I'm managing I'm managing John from Candyria now. He's putting out a solo album. Um, he's going to put out a Spilacopa record, and I'm going to manage him. I'm going to get him on the road. I'm going to do this. And he had a conversation with a guy named Rob Gross. Rob Gross is in the music industry. Um, he works for Shark Attack Records. Uh, he worked for BMI. He's been in the game of many, uh, many, many, many years. Um, he's also well aware of Candiria. He's a fan. He's also very well aware of my my music with, Sp- with uh, Spila copa music and everything. He was psyched to hear I'm making another record, but he what he said to Chris was, he said, "I think that dude needs to start thinking about rebranding because he's done so much with this and that. It's time he should start using his own name or something, or come up with something new." And um, when Chris called me and he said this, I was kind of annoyed. You know what I mean? (laughs) I just was like, who the fuck? (laughs) Who the fuck is this guy? You know? (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, fuck him. (laughs) He'll laugh if he hears this. Trust me.
0: Do you, uh, is that usually your first reaction? Like, even if the advice is good or I should take it, sometimes my first reaction is just, fuck you or don't tell me what to do. Does that happen to you too? Totally. Totally. Yeah. Totally.
1: And that was exactly what happened. And then I thought about it. I really did think about it. And the thing that came to my mind was the fact that anytime you know, I worked in, in the very beginning stages of work of working on the Spilacopa Records. The first EP that came out, Greg Pucciato came on and we we we, we collaborated and, and he was it was me and him. We made that EP, basically. Jeff Kashid was a huge part of it. Uh, Julie Christmas got on a track, but really, Greg and me—it was a really—we worked together a lot on that, and um, uh, it was a great experience for me. I was a huge fan of Greg's voice, and blah 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 blah. You know, you get it. But um, Greg only worked on that one EP. After that, he really disappeared. Um, Julie was on the full length, but basically, what I'm trying to say is, in that time period, in 2007, when I left Candiria and I was working on the Spilocopa music early on, Greg, Julie, and Jeff were involved in the project. Come 10 years, five years later, after that happened, they were gone. So by the time I'm putting out records in 2016, 2018, I can't, nobody, everybody keeps bringing up their names. And I'm like, these guys have nothing to do with this anymore. And it was that idea that I just couldn't shake these other names. It's not that it, I don't, I love all of them. I love Greg Still, Jeff. These are, my, these are my friends, but they have nothing to do with the music project anymore. And it's just like, they always come up. And I don't mind if they come up in this way. This is an organic thing. We're having a conversation. But every single article, their names would be mentioned. And I'm like, it just, it just, it irked me because they're not, they're no longer involved. You know what I mean? Um, and I, and I imagine it even irked them to some degree because what the hell are they, their names getting mentioned for? You know, they have nothing to do with this and they haven't for many years. And that was really the thing to me. I was like, you know, this is what I think Rob is talking about. Cause the music that I'm putting out and I have been putting out for the past, I don't know um 8 years has absolutely nothing to do with these other people. So at that point I was completely convinced that I wanted to use my own name. And then then Aqualam who I just got involved with, they completely agreed with it too. They were like this is a great idea. Definitely use your name. And they were like we don't even want you to use your first name anymore. We want to just use just use Lamakia. It's a, it's such a cool name. It's such a cool word. It sounds great. And they got me like fucking psyched on this shit. So I was like, <laughs> I was like, fine, I'm going to go with it. And then, of course, I, I make this decision in my mind and Chris comes back. He's like, ah, uh, I'm kind of having second thoughts about this whole thing. I'm like, no way, dude. That's it. We're going with it. <laughs> <laughs> so he was like, all right, here we go. And um, it actually was a great decision because if people are responding to it very, very well. And they're responding to it. Um, there people are, are, you know what I mean? And it is being accepted as, as something that is solely mine. You know, there's new names that are attached to it, um, which I'm really, really excited about. You know, um, and it's just great that it's it, it feels new. It feels right. So um I really I couldn't be happier with where I'm at right now as a musician.
0: Yeah, it's gotta be fantastic. It's your own thing. It sounds like you're calling the shots, and uh what do you have planned? Is there gonna be live shows?
1: Um yeah. Um, There actually were two live shows already. Um, My manager hooked up the first one. Uh, I opened up for Spotlights and Shiner. What a way to step on the scene. Wow. Where was that? That was at Elsewhere in Brooklyn. That was on March 3rd. And it was a sold out show. It was fantastic to play with those guys. Wow. Um, And I just played another great show, Um, Aqualand Presents. I did a show with uh, all Aqualam bands, which was really, really nice. We did that on Easter Sunday, which was probably the best way to spend an Easter. I think I'm going to do it every year. It was just a fantastic thing to do. I mean, who gives a shit about fucking eggs and and bunnies anyway? Um, (laughs) I'm sorry, kids. But uh, yeah, we had another great show with another great turnout. Um, I love. We did it at Union Pool in Brooklyn. And uh, I love that venue. Um, So we were really, really psyched to um to get into that room. I've never played that stage and um the band w- loved it. We all just had a blast. We had an absolute blast.
0: Wow, some good gigs. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. And uh you know, we're going to do some more. We're going to do some more gigs. We're going to try to get on the road. We want to get on some festivals. We're going to do the whole thing. So
0: folks, Thunderheads by Lamakia comes out May 20th on Aqualam Records and we have to get it. We have to. I have heard the advance take it from me. You want to hear this?
1: Thanks, man. I appreciate that so much.
0: So you'll have some more gigs in the work, right? Mm Mm-hmm. We do. We're doing a little East Coast run in
1: early August. Um, Before that, I might have a gig in the end of June. I'm still waiting to hear. Um, I'm going to do some kind of um, little record release shindig thing, but I haven't really figured out where and when yet. And uh, my other band, I play guitar for another band. These are two of my dearest friends, my friend uh, Silvia Herrera. And Joseph Mirazzo, uh, they're my two of my dearest, dearest friends, like family to me, and they live around the corner. And I will say, during the pandemic, they basically were my only—well, besides Candice, um, who actually performs on the album and sings a song on the album. You know, your world—I'm I'm sure you understand—like how small everyone's world got whenever pandemic happened and we Big were time. locked down. Um, so Joe and Sylvia were really like, you know, if I was ever alone or alone for too long, they would say, come over. We'll do like a social distance dinner or we'll sit in the backyard and we'll, you know, have a drink and we'll listen to some music. They really, really were like my saviors. But anyway, um, I digress once again. They have a, um, alt country folk psych rock little music project and um, i'm very thrilled to be able to play guitar with them what's the name of the band it's called green lady um they have an instagram account i don't think they update it often (laughs) but it's green lady one word and but it's a really cool music project for me because it's really you know as you know i've never played you've never heard any alt country on any Candyria albums uh, so it's an interesting departure for me. It's an interesting thing to like get involved with and, and play different styles of music. I'm always interested in, and in, and learning new things as far as guitar goes, as far as music goes. Um, so I think there will be some Green Lady shows in the, sp- in the spring into the early summer. And I look forward to that. I just wanted to plug Green Lady, uh, as well as La Machia record.
0: Absolutely. We have to plug it all. You have a record label too, right?
1: Yes, I do. It's called Rising Pulse Records. I've been around for nearly 15 years putting out vinyl records and CDs and cassettes and merch and limited run stuff. It's been quiet these days because I'm so busy uh, with my record. But that's the cool thing about it. That's the cool thing about my label. It's a no pressure situation.
0: Yeah. What's the dynamic of your label? When's the last time you put something out? How involved do you get?
1: I'm the only one involved. Um, It's all me. Uh, occasionally I will hire help, but, um, it's very rare that I do. I haven't put out any releases this year yet. Last year, I think I put out one or two. It's just the type of thing that I use it. My, my record label gets used and abused. Let's just put it that way. And it, so. gets, it gets used, abused, and neglected <laughs> because I, I, I use it whenever I need to put a record out or I need to, you know, say there's, um, like I'll give an example. Uh this guy Virgil uh from France, a friend of mine, he owns he owns an independent record label called Tentacles Industries. He bought the rights to Candiria's 300% Density to he bought he he licensed it from from Century Media and he pressed up 500 copies of the album. Um and I was like, well there's no damn way you're putting that shit out without me being involved because <laughs> that it's record is so super important to me and I want I want rising pulse records to be a part of it. So I was able to work out a deal with him where I, the label got its own unique vinyl color that was only available through my label. And, um, I was able to make like a t-shirt to go along with it and this and that. And, you know, I got involved and I was able to be a a part of something that I felt was really truly like a cool experience because 300% density is a very important album to me and a lot of our fans. And, um, I wanted to make sure that I had the opportunity to help with the artwork, to help with the production end of it, to help with um, making sure that the the test pressing sounded great and everything sounded right. You know, all of those little things, make sure the artwork looked great um, and then to also have it come out through Rising Pulse, Pulse Records. So, it's, so in situations like that, you know, no matter how busy I am writing an album or working on something for me, I want to make sure that that my label gets involved in these types of
0: things. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I, I would have said the same thing you did. I would say, hey, this is my band. This is my record. I need to be involved. Right, exactly. Especially if I had a label. I mean, come yeah. on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, folks, let's recap. Here's what we want to do. Number one, if you somehow have not heard Candyria, you have to go and do that. That's number one, especially the records that you are on. Right, John?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> Anything <laughs> from Beyond Reasonable Doubt on. Those, that's the sweet spot. Let's do it. But it's all great. Number two, we are going to purchase Thunderheads by Lamachia when it releases in May, right? Right. We have to. And we right. have to go catch you live when you play. Yes, absolutely. And number three, we are going to check out the alt-country band Green Lady that John is now a part of. Right. How about, I just had an idea, John. Uh you mentioned that you've never played alt country before. What about on a new Canderia song we do like a really alt country southern fried intro into like the <laughs> into like the hardest breakdown you've ever heard. It could be the next generation of Canderia.
1: I bet you at this point Carly would be like yes we're doing it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm like Just- n- totally serious it sounds really awesome in my head. <laughs>
1: Well, I I guarantee you at this point, Carly would say, yes, let's try it. Screw it. We've done everything else. Why not?
0: (laughs) All right. We're going to conference him in after this and uh, spitball it. We'll see what happens. All right. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, John, uh, you've created so much music that I love and continue to do so. And this was a fantastic conversation. So I just want to say thank you for taking the time. To speak with me tonight.
1: Well, Keith, thank you. I, I really did enjoy it, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time and all of support throughout the years. I really do appreciate it.
0: There you have it, folks. John Lamakia Wonderful to talk to John, I've been waiting to talk to someone from Candyria since I started this show. Great stories. That was crazy. The stories about all the car accidents that he's been in. I didn't even really notice this while I was talking to him because I was in the zone, but that whole thing with the you know, he thought it was counting down to a final accident where he was gonna be killed, the the window of years just kept getting shorter and shorter. That's wild. That must have been really scary to deal with. I'm glad John and the band ended up being okay. I was so happy when Candiria started writing music again. You know, because I got I got reinterested in them when they were gone. But then they came out with the Invaders seven inch, and they came out with the new full length in two thousand sixteen. While you were sleeping, got to see them live a couple of times again too. So very happy that that band is still active. Very happy that John is releasing this new record Thunderheads and realizing his personal dreams of releasing the solo work. I like everything I've heard. Make sure you check out the latest LaMakia single as well, Angel's Delight. That was one of my favorites from the record. Love everything they're doing. It was great talking to John. Thank you, John, so much for coming on the show. Okay, so let's check in. How are we doing? Now, this has been a very, very active weekend. Folks, I have attended a gig... And I'm going to tell you about it right now. I saw Matthew Deere, Tycho, and Interpol at King's Theater in Brooklyn. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to King's Theater, but it is by far, I would say it's the most impressive venue I've ever been to. Gigantic indoor theater with all these intricate wood carvings on pillars, and there's a big balcony area. Unbelievable. And I don't usually go to shows this size. If you haven't been to the venue or if you have an opportunity to go, check it out. Really, really something. When I got there, Matthew Deere was wrapping up. I caught the last three songs. I really like what I heard, though. It was uh, like electronic rock music, and he was singing over it. It, I, it was good. It was good. Tycho. Tycho was direct support for Interpol. Now, get this. Years ago, years ago, I had tickets to see Tycho in Philadelphia. And this is back when I was a mess, right? So I woke up and I was a mess all banged up on drugs and alcohol, puking. Somehow I got on the Amtrak train to go down to Philly to catch the show. I was a mess on the train. I was a mess when I got off the train. I wasn't even going to go to the show. Somehow I pulled it together and dragged myself to the show. But I was so sick, I stayed for like half of a Tycho song and then just ended up going to my friend's house and staying there and going to sleep. So I missed them. And I never got to see them. And Saturday, the very day of my anniversary of being another year clean from drugs and alcohol, my friend texts me and says, hey, Interpol is playing tonight. Do you want me to put you on the list? I was like, yes, absolutely. Put me on for tonight if you can. So because of the kindness of my friend, on the very anniversary of my clean date, I got to go see this show and I got to see Tycho for real for the first time, and I got to see Interpol. I've never seen Interpol before. This is a band I've loved since I heard them first back in, uh, when was it, 2004, when I heard Turn On The Bright Lights for the first time. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. The sound was massive and killer. Everything sounded perfect. I tell you what, I'm going to have to get into more popular music now that I'm 40 years old, because the seated. Shows are where it's at. Everybody was sitting down and chilled during Tycho. I got to enjoy the whole thing. But the thing that I hate is everybody stands up for the headliner. And why? Why you have a seat. We could all be sitting down, relaxing, watching the band. But everybody stood up for the entire set. And there was people running in the aisles. There was random people coming down to where I was at and like trying to squeeze into where I'm sitting and bumping into me. And it was it was really irritating. But listen, listen. I'm not going to complain. I'm so unbelievably happy that I had the opportunity to go to the show and that I had a very full and amazing day. Earlier in the day, I was hanging out with my friend Robert Butcher, who has been on the show before. Check out his episode if you haven't heard it. There was a punk rock benefit show in Tompkins Square Park going on. So we were checking that out, seeing a couple bands just hanging out, walking around. It was fun. And in stark contrast to last year, Around this time, which was pretty miserable. So happy that I had a very full day with friends, hanging out, seeing great bands. It was awesome. And yes, yeah, so like I mentioned, yesterday, Saturday the fourteenth, marked another year alcohol and drug free for me. And I don't think I've ever shared my story on the show before, so I'm gonna do it now. Uh I, I keep some details murky. For reasons, but here, here's, here's what I'm going to share. At the end of the road for me, I was in really, really bad shape. I had tried all of the things that people try. Abstinence, substitution, uh, just trying to stop everything, just trying to drink and not do anything else. Medicine, psychiatry, moving. Nothing worked. I dipped my toe into twelve step stuff, but I just wasn't feeling it. And I was just too scared. I was too scared to actually make a change because my life had been just this mess and just relying on substances to get me through the day for so long that I didn't know I didn't know there were other options. I didn't know it was possible not to feel this way. And I, I imagine that, you know, once I stopped all that stuff, my life would be boring. And I didn't want to live the life of a normal person, you know, which is sounds crazy because my life in that state was boring. I didn't do anything. I didn't create anything. I didn't hang out with anybody. I just sat home and watched garbage on Netflix and got fucked up. Now that's boring. That is boring. So anyway, things got really, really, really bad, you know, to the point where I wanted to just overdose and die. Or get arrested because nothing was stopping me. I couldn't stop myself. And I don't, I just, I knew I had to change. I knew something had to change. And I finally made the decision to commit to a life of recovery and do what I had to do. And it was not easy. And I got by with a lot of luck and a lot of help from other people. I got over my fear and finally started reaching out and asking for help and doing a lot of, really uncomfortable things, doing basically everything that I hated the most to make sure that I stayed on the right path and got over everything. And, you know, I don't like to go into all the specifics for various reasons, but if you're struggling and you need help, you can reach out to me directly and I'll tell you what worked for me. How about that? Is that fair? So, yeah, it's it's been tough and, uh, you know, I almost didn't make it along the way a couple times. I... I've almost relapsed a couple times that was a while ago though back in my first year and I don't know it's it I couldn't be happier with the way my life is going now. I actually have a life. I have friends I have people I can count on I'm creating things i've I've done the record uh the basement year record back in two thousand eighteen i I was the lead in the play that my acting class put on. I I have this podcast now. There's you know I'm starting a new band, and hopefully that's going to go somewhere. So there's just endless things to look forward to now and a lot of nice surprises in life. So it's just kind of funny to look back on it and think like, oh, I thought my life was going to be so boring once I gave up all the substances. But the complete opposite has proven to be true. So listen, if you're struggling... And you're listening to this, you can do it. You can do. If I can do it, you can do it. Because I was never going to stop. I was never going to stop. At a, at minimum, I was going to binge drink for the rest of my life. And you know, I don't do that anymore. So wonderful weekend. Couldn't be happier. Now we've got another new show coming up next week. I'm going to give you a hint. It's a band who put out an amazing record earlier this year. That's all I'm going to say. You're going to have to figure it out from there. So make sure you check back in. We're here every Monday morning at 9 a.m. with new episodes. I'm going to leave you with a song that was the anthem for me getting my shit together in early recovery. It's a song I still love and still listen to. The band is Gates. The song is Walls. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next time.